Hello and welcome back to the Shadow Work Library. I'm Jessica DePazzi and for the next at least 52 shows, I'm going to take you through this series that covers a spectrum of negative patterns in the human experience. Check this out. It's only been two weeks since my last submission, not a month like my usual cadence. I've gotten more in flow with shadow work lately and so the process of putting these together has gotten a little bit more swift, which is great. Now, before I get into the next two layers of conflict coined by Jennifer Russell and Brian Franklin, I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be adding some bonus episodes in between shadow work submissions, which are going to be conversations with my friends on their own practices of shadow work as we enjoy a vice of our choosing. The ancient Greeks called these symposiums where they drank and had deep conversations about life, philosophy, and whatnot. And... I'm just excited to introduce you to my circle of friends. Some of these are old friends, some are new. They come from many different walks of life. They live all over the world. And if I were to try to describe what connects us and brings us together, we're insanely curious and no topics are off the table to discuss. We're perceptive, kind of provocative, and have a lot of fun doing our life's work and being of service, which gives us a ton to geek out on, especially on the topic of shadow work. I'd say they're all fairly adventurous as well, tempting death physically and even deaths of their own identities often. So the mantra of the guests I'll be bringing on is likely what doesn't kill me makes me stronger and stranger and weirder and stranger. It's so strange. (laughs) So yeah, they're not your normal people, which makes them perfect podcast guests. And I'm so excited for you to meet them. I have symposiums already recorded with four of my friends, with Ashley Bledsoe. Uh, We talk for two hours about sex, the good, the bad, the beautiful, and the taboo. So less about shadow work, but I think sex is a topic that could be under that umbrella because there's so much that isn't talked about. Then I interviewed Rick Alexander, who's a recently retired special ops medic. He's turned philosopher and author, and he's currently studying in a seminary. And he and I talk about God and spirit And then I interviewed Mark England. He is a language wizard, and this guy is amazing. He can have you demolishing negative self-talk with his voodoo in seconds. It's so cool. And then Dr. Danielle McGinnis, she studies depth psychology, and so you know she's going to have some great wisdom to share about shadow work. Okay, so how about we get started with the next layer of conflict, which is your personal childhood past. This, like the prior layers of conflict that I discussed on episode 12, is past-oriented, meaning the memories of your past shape how you are today. If you take the sentence, how sad is it that memories of our past can ruin our future? It sounds reasonable, but it's not necessary. If you were to listen to the Mark England interview, we talk about architect language versus conflict language. He would have me translate that into how amazing is it that you can improve your future by being untied to the past? That's a great episode. I'm so excited for you to listen to it. (laughs) Now, this is the layer that I believe most talk therapy helps you untangle by addressing your current distress and helps you see where that originated in your childhood. And since we only have like 15 minutes to talk about what many people will spend a lifetime trying to untangle, I'm just going to give you my Cliff Notes or Cole's Notes for my Canadian listeners. During our childhood, we've gone from the potato lying in a crib to being more like a puppy. We're loving life, feeling pure joy and playfulness, and then slowly we start to experience disapproval or invalidation from our parents or our siblings or whoever else is around, really. We can't just keep peeing all over the place 
eventually we learn the things that we should do and the things that we shouldn't do. And this can get a little funky because what's acceptable and not acceptable varies from family to family, from parent to parent, from culture to culture. The aspects of ourselves that are deemed positive or negative really have everything to do with the people that we grow up with. When we are invalidated by doing something our caretakers deem negative, we start to form beliefs, just like we form beliefs about ourselves and others when they validate us for doing something that they believe is positive. And this process, it has us questioning in our little puppy brains, are we loved or lovable? Am I still lovable after I drew on the walls with markers? Am I still lovable even though I get angry because mom gets upset when I get mad or mom loves me more when I'm easygoing? Feeling unlovable is actually what's known in psychology as a core belief. And a core belief is an assumption that's often hidden deep within ourselves, like your shadow. It's an assumption we make about the world and then we mistake it as a fact. It can sound like I'm not good enough to be loved. I'm too flawed or damaged or ugly or stupid to be loved or love is for other people it's not for me and if you refer back to my submission on the core wounds you can get a good idea of what core wound or core belief you may have but as a refresher there's actually six I explained that in another episode it got a little confusing but there's repression denial shame reaction guilt and Then the sixth one, the sixth secret one, which is separation, and that is a culmination of all of those. These are like barriers that we put up to protect ourselves from feeling unloved and to keep other people from hurting us. And although they have a subconscious intention to help us, much like the first two layers of conflict I discussed on the last submission, they do end up trapping us in our self-fulfilling prophecy of that core belief that we're not enough, we're not good enough to really be lovable. You can recognize this layer bubbling up for you when you start to use those less mature ways of coping with something. Your voice tone changes, you have regressed body language, like maybe you cross your arms, you transform into that seven-year-old version of yourself. I'll give you an example. Let's say your older sister is kind of a hellraiser. You, as a child, observe how much conflict she's creating so you see the benefit of being the easygoing one or the peacemaker. And from a personal example, when I experience layer three vibes on a subtle level, I, I'm i a powder. <laughs> I cross my arms and I tuck my head down slightly and I'm like, meh, I'm not being understood. I'm just going to go within myself. But also I'm aware that this is an outward thing. I'm not really doing it for myself. If I address my inner critic after I do my pouting, I can see that I'm doing it to emotionally blackmail my partner, <laughs> which sounds crazy, but... I mean, I really, I want the other person to do something for me. Like, look at me. I'm doing this because I want you to understand me. So I'm regressing. I'm not using a very mature strategy of dealing with whatever needs to be dealt with. Some ways this might play out for you if the third layer is heavy in your life is that you might get into relationships with people who you feel are you're better than to ensure that they'll never leave you. Or you might tend to get into relationships, excuse me, with people who are unavailable to commit to you because you have this core belief that you're not lovable enough for somebody to really commit to. You might frequently feel senses of abandonment or betrayal, or you might even find some kind of happiness in your misery because it gets you the attention that you want from other people. Or you might be your own own worst critic and constantly remind yourself about how you're a loser. 
Another less obvious example is that you can find yourself regressing by being a people pleaser and looking for validation or recognition when you're not feeling so hot about yourself. You're not doing it because you want to do something truly nice for the other person. These are the times where you're rooting yourself in this insecurity of your own worth and that could stem your and that could stem from coming from a family that praised you for being so happy and easygoing and deemed anger or deep emotions as bad. So, like all shadow work, there's quite a large spectrum. You might be a powder like me or maybe you whine or throw a tantrum. You might want to break things because your voice isn't big enough to be heard. You might want to physically hurt your partner or you might be a people pleaser. So, Some of these are demonized as just plain bad behavior and others could completely fly under the radar and even be seen as positive. I mean, all these reactions can be endearing with little kids, but when you're an adult, they can also be dangerous in so many ways. The point is, you know you're regressing when you sense that you're being immature or are coping younger than you really are. By identifying that with your inner critic, you also know that you're not reacting to the present situation. You're perhaps acting from your childhood wounds. And while hitting someone is obviously not okay, it also doesn't deem you as a monster that can never reform. Would you tell your seven-year-old son that you're disowning him because he hits you? You know he's scared, heartbroken, or confused. And I get that this is controversial because there are definitely times for non-negotiables as an adult. And also, I want people to consider compassion for what we're also working with here. We're humans who are not just the current age that we are, but also simultaneously every age we've ever been. And that means we also have the power to consciously access those ages through the power of our imagination and reparent ourselves in the way that only we can do for ourselves right now. When we access those younger parts of us that keep coming up, We can give ourselves what our caregivers didn't or couldn't give us. And one of the most simple strategies for reparenting yourself is to give yourself the kind of compassion you'd give your own child when he's angry, confused, or scared. So just pause with your regression for a moment. Instead of pushing it aside or going into resistance, be non-judgmental about your feelings. There are so many social expectations about how we should feel, which has us getting stuck in these unfinished loops of personal growth. So... First, you can just ask your inner critic during that moment of pause, what actually happened there? And then you can access your inner child through the power of your imagination and ask him, what are you feeling now? Name that emotion, angry, sad, scared, and where are you feeling it? Is it in your chest, your stomach, your throat? And once you've identified that, you can ask yourself, what can I do for myself right now to feel more loved? And see if doing that thing for yourself, again, not asking anyone to do anything for you yet, but just making it a personal practice because we don't want our partners to parent us. See if that releases that tension in the area that you've identified as being constricted. Another thing is that touch can regulate us. We crave touch and contact. And the cool thing is that you can give it to yourself. You can put your hands on your heart, cross-palmed with your thumbs intertwined, like you're making a a shadow puppet of a bird, and that's the hand mudra of peace. So you just put it on your heart here and see if that doesn't give you the love and the peace that you're seeking at that moment in the case that you're flaring up. So sure, the strategy for reparenting yourself can be really big and complicated, but also I think it can be a little bit simpler, like the method that I had explained right now, just simply talking to yourself 
as if you're talking to your your child, offering yourself as the child the same love and compassion that you would to even your dog. (laughs) Because we're so hard on ourselves. And I haven't fully thought through why that happens now that I think about it. But if you're not even going to talk that way to a stranger's kid or your own dog, then chances are it's not a great way to deal with your own scared, regressed emotions. So the fourth layer of conflict is also a great one. This is power, control, and projection, and it comes from your present day. So we're finally moving out of the past and into a more current reality of the conflict. If you imagine these layers of conflict as a ladder, the first rung being the collective unconscious has you asking yourself, who am I? And then as you climb that next rung to the second, that being where your universal patterns live, that has us asking ourselves, am I safe? The third rung above that is that we just talked about is asking ourselves, am I loved? And the fourth one, which I'll elaborate more in a second, has us questioning, am I good? Am I the good guy in this storyline or do I feel powerless in this situation? We like the good guy in the story because he has the power to make change. We wouldn't feel the same way if he was good and also powerless. So goodness and a sense of power go hand in hand. Goodness and a sense that there's nothing you can do to change anything results in desperation. This desperation that's built into us about wanting to be the good guy and also wield the power in the conflict, for example, to be the hero of the situation, not the villain, has us subconsciously evaluating the status of the other person to find out where we lie on the hierarchy. And then that's when the infamous power struggle happens. We dance the struggle for power, and if you get it, you wield that power to get what you want, which is ultimately getting the feeling of having some power in the situation and also validating yourself as still being the good guy. You can see this layer of conflict bubbling up when you start to identify as the good guy or the victim or the perpetrator or the villain, and your opponent can hold one of these roles as well. We use these casting of characters to judge ourselves as either inferior or superior and then start the process of trying to take back the power position. In this layer of conflict, we also invite projection into the game. So while you're casting yourself and your opponent in all these rules, that is your unconscious attempt to control them. Projection is your unconscious attempt to blame them for your own power-seeking behavior. I'll give you the shoe example again from the last submission. You come home with a new pair of shoes, your wife says she likes them, and then in the same sentence, she asks how much they were, and you're triggered, and you descend into the depths of the fourth conflict. You cast her into the role of the cheap, money-grabbing villain who doesn't want you to enjoy the fruits of your labor, and you're the victim, the subservient husband who has to explain himself for just buying a pair of shoes, which maybe you've already admitted in your head you didn't really need, but you got them anyway. You may have come home even expecting this response from her and ready for conflict, but that note aside, you're pissed and you feel like you were shoved into an identity role of subservient husband that you are not okay with identifying with. And sure, perhaps your wife is a little bit on the cheap side and isn't loving that you bought these shoes, especially since you just had a conversation about trying to save money, but this conflict right now is bigger than that to you at this moment. What's happening here might be considered psychological projection, which is when we defend ourselves against our own unpleasant impulses by denying the existence of these impulses completely, but then we attribute them to somebody else. 
So basically you're finding her behavior unpleasant, but almost certainly it's your own projection of your disappointment with yourself for buying these shoes that you didn't really need. And then knowing that you have to explain yourself when you get home. So ultimately it's about being forced into this identity shift that's threatening your current sense of self. It's one of the most challenging aspects of shadow work, which is understanding that what you find unpleasant in somebody else is probably likely absolutely usually a projection of your own shadow. Sure, you're probably seeing their shadow as well, but you're seeing it through your own shadow. Just like we're simultaneously every age that we ever lived, we're also Jekyll and Hyde right now. We're both. Sometimes it's good to play the hero in your own story. And as my friend Rick Alexander says, sometimes you need to know when to be the supporter in somebody else's story. And then I'd even add on to that. Sometimes it's okay to be the villain or the foe in somebody else's story. If you buy into the idea that struggle can make us stronger, that adversity is the common tool used among the greats to become extraordinary, then I'd argue that you have to be okay with being the cause of someone's bad day once in a while. Because without the villain, the hero doesn't have anything to fight for. So if we bring it back to our example, you come home already prepared to defend your position because you know you did something that warrants a conflict, whether you really want to admit it or not. And because you don't want to be identified as the Voldemort who's out doing whatever he wants, you want to be on Team Gryffindor. You project your blame outward and then cast that villain role into your wife so that you can you can play poor Harry Potter who just needs a new pair of shoes. Now, the strategy to get out of this fourth layer of power, control, and projection is to see yourself and the situation with more holism. And holism is defined as the idea that different parts are all interconnected and they can't be understood without understanding the entire whole. So in the real world, the bad guy isn't usually as obviously evil as a Disney villain. He's more like the Joker who believes he's doing good, but just in his own flavor. So to avoid being Joker and Batman, a lot of pop references here, we need to train ourselves to have a third view that lies beyond the two contrary opinions. Not one way or the other way, not right or wrong, not good or bad, Democratic or Republican. Because the moment when you start to think more dimensionally, you unwind the tangles of control, power, and projection, and then you're Dumbledore. (laughs) Okay, so those were the second two layers of conflict, and now we've covered four out of the seven. On the next shadow work submission, I will cover the final three, which are unmet needs and expectations, present perfection and future vision, and dharmic themes. And as always, if you have any questions about what I talked about today, please email me at jessica at thespecialforcesexperience.com or hit me up on Instagram at jessicadepatzi underscore. That's D-E-P-A-T-I-E. And if you're enjoying the show, just keep listening. Have a great week, everybody. Stay safe, but not too safe. And we will talk again soon.